you have your Bibles, want to follow along, turn to chapter 5 of Job. Job chapter 5. Call now if there be any that will answer thee, and to which of the saints wilt thou turn? For wrath killeth the foolish man, and envy slayeth, slayeth, slayeth the silly one. I have seen the foolish taking root, but suddenly I cursed his habitation. Till children are far from safety, and they are crushed in the gate, neither is there any to deliver them. Whose harvest the hungry eateth up, and taketh it even out of the thorns, and the robber swallows up their substance. All the affliction cometh not forth of the dust, neither does trouble spring out of the ground. Yet man is born into trouble, as the sparks fly upward. I would seek unto the God, and unto God will I commit my cause, which doeth great things, and unsearchable, marvelous things, without number who giveth rain upon the earth, and sendeth waters upon the fields, to set upon high those that be low, and those which mourn may be exalted to safety. He disappointeth the devices of the crafty, so that their hands cannot perform their enterprise. He taketh the wise in their own craftiness, and the counsel of the forward is carried headlong. They meet with darkness in the daytime, and grope in the new day as in the night. But he saveth the poor from the sword, from their mouth, and from the hand of the Almighty. So the poor hath hope, and iniquity stoppeth her mouth. Behold, happy is the man whom God correcteth. Therefore despise not thou chastening of the Almighty. For he maketh sore, and bindeth up. He woundeth, and his hands make whole. He shall deliver thee in six troubles. Yea, in seven there shall no evil touch thee. In famine he shall redeem thee from death, and in war from the power of the sword. Thou shalt be hid from the scourge of the tongue, and neither shalt thou be afraid of destruction when it cometh. At destruction and famine thou shalt laugh, neither shalt thou be afraid of the beast of the earth. For thou shalt be in league with the stones of the field, and the beast of the field shall be at peace with thee. And thou shalt know thy tabernacle shall be in peace, and thou shalt visit thy habitation, and shall not sin. Thou shalt know also that thy seed shall be great, and thine offspring is the grass of the earth. Thou shalt come to thy grave in a full age, like the shock of corn cometh in his season. Though this we have searched it, so it is, is. Hear it and know thou for thy good. And from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a father the son, into whom he has delight. And Revelation 3.19 says, As many as I love, I rebuke and correct. Be jealous therefore, and repent. I'd have a quote down here. I had a reasonable person is seldom angry, and an angry person is seldom reasonable. Thank you, Jesus. Talk about the miracle of judgment. Anybody think that judgment is a miracle? Does that sound just a little bit strange to you? The judge, the miracle of judgment. Let's find out. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Peter 3, 5 through 13. I have been criticized by Mona Davis for using my, my iPhone to read scriptures. So I decided to go back to the book so that everybody will think that I'm not one of those techno geeks. Like Eldar. <laughs> 
So I'm going to do it this way, even though they do read the same, just so you'll know. <laughs> All right, Second Peter 3, 5 through 13. For this they willingly are ignorant of that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but his long-suffering to us were not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. The earth also and the world and the works, rather, that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Isn't that something? Second Peter, uh, I'm not finished yet, but a lot of these charismatic churches need to read Second Peter 3 concerning judgment. Because it's pretty plain, isn't it, that there is going to be a day of judgment. Grace is not going to last forever. There can't be a grace without a judgment. There can't be a judgment without grace. One complements the other. So it's, it's, uh, it's important for us to see this aspect of God and know that uh, there is a miracle in judgment as well. Verse 12, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we according to his promise look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. All right, you may be seated. Who's got a great definition of miracles? Really biblical, really well-read uh, definition. Raise your hand good and high. I won't call on you and embarrass you unless no one raises their hands. Go ahead. Yeah, what now? She's trying to walk. That's a miracle. That's a definition? Okay, that's a miracle. All right, and it is. But let's define that. Define that. Go ahead. That's a very good definition. That is. And fits in. With, with what I have here. Who else? Someone, go ahead. Okay, and that fits well with that one. Mm-hmm. But I want you to note this. See, you're, you're bringing out my point. What you're bringing out as a miracle is how we think. You had your hand up? Okay. Anybody else? About the northern lands. All cold. Go ahead. South is a little warmer over here. Very good. Oh, very, very good. Okay, let's look at it in, in the terms of someone who thinks they know what a miracle is. So just miracles are supernatural manifestation of God's spirit that involves his presence and workings in the created realm. And really that's what you said. This involves his, its manifestations of God's Spirit in the created realm. 
and what he created, he manifests himself that in, in, in whatever instance it may be. But this is what we're going to try to, to qualify here this morning, is what are really, what is defined, what do we call miracles? And, and, and Kim said some things that, that goes along very well, because God's power, actually, from a human perspective, we, we associate miracles with positive experiences, which they are, but that's all we tend to associate miracles with, uh, such as, and she brought this up as healings or instantaneous deliverance from, from sin, depression, sinful habits, uh, and, and you know, that's, that's what we do. We define it that way. And further, the book of Acts goes a lot further with this, and often it comes to mind when, when the, where we discover that a, the lame beggar was healed in Luke 3. You know, that was a miracle, and we associate that. Peter was rescued by an angel in Acts 12. Uh, Holy Ghost suddenly fell on the Gentile audience while Peter preached in Acts 10. And each of these miracles inspired astonishment and wonder in those who witnessed what the Lord had done. And isn't that what miracles should do? It should cause us to wonder, to look, to, to have the person out in the congregation that, that is searching for God, that desires salvation, and they see a supernatural manifestation of God go on or, or happen right in the congregation. Someone uh, during the preaching jumps up and begins to speak with other tongues. That's a supernatural manifestation. Someone walks down and they're, they're, they need healing for their body, and, and, and they're all bent over, and, and, and they come back and they're, they're rejoicing and they're shouting. And one time in the Philippines, someone went with me. Remember, there was a lady and, and had polio that came up. We were in Mario Villanueva's church, and she came up, and, and we prayed. Two or three of us prayed for her, and she couldn't raise her arm because of this, and she instantly raised her arm, was instantly healed. You should have heard the congregation. You know, it wasn't as 100 people in this little bitty room, practically, and they just absolutely went ballistic. And everybody, we were in a tight area. There was an area where houses right up was against the church. Everybody, because it was all open, heard what happened and as a result of that Mario later told me that several people began to come to the church why because of a supernatural manifestation of God's spirit now that's what it should be but but miracles are not always positive okay in their let me let me say the rest of it in their outcome when viewed from a human perspective now soon after after Peter's Miraculous deliverance from prison, an angel of the Lord killed King Herod. And Herod, of course, is responsible for the death of the Apostle James and his imprisonment of Peter in Acts 12. Likewise, what did God do? He struck down Ananias and Sapphira for their dishonest conduct. You see that in Acts 5. Now, while these examples uh, constituted miracles, they were manifestation of God's judgment. You know, you would prefer for me to come up here and preach about the lame man at the gate called Beautiful in Acts 3 rather than preach about Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5, wouldn't you? But yet the miracle was still the miracle. No matter what, it's the miracle. Now, it's like a two-sided coin. You know, you, you, some, you know, to some the miracle might seem good and beneficial from one standpoint. And on the other hand, it may not be so good from a different standpoint. God's judgment against sin. And that's simply what it was. That's the miracles that God performed against Pharaoh and his kingdom in Exodus 9 and 16. Also function as feats of deliverance 
for the enslaved Israelites. Israel rejoiced because of their deliverance from Egypt. But were the Egyptians rejoicing? I mean, they lost their firstborn. There was death. There was destruction in Egypt. The Israelites were rejoicing, but somebody else wasn't. Is it possible? Is it possible that you pray for a miracle for you? Is it possible that that miracle that occurred for you would affect someone else in a negative way? Just a thought. The book of Genesis depicts three spectacular miracles of judgment. The flood, Genesis 7. The Tower of Babel, Genesis 11. And the destruction of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. Now these miracles displayed God's judgment against unrepentant sinners. And were typical of the final day of God's vengeance when the lost shall cry out, The great day of His wrath has come and who shall be able to stand in Revelation 6.17. While not pleasant, these punishments represent one aspect of God's nature. And we have to understand that nature. God is indeed, He's loving and He's merciful and He's generous, but He is also holy. And He, des- and he despises and He judges sin. He is holy. God is love, but God is holy. And we have got to preach in balance both aspects of God. Amen. They have to be preached in balance. The flood was, was unlike anything that humans had ever experienced up to this time. Now, and, refle- and it reflected God's global judgment. This wasn't just uh, localized in one area. This was global judgment against uh, rampant sin on a scale that had never been seen before. Now, the flood left catastrophic destruction and death in its wake. The existing surface of the earth was significantly altered. And the human race essentially began life brand new as a result of God's judgment on unrepentant sin. And everybody says quietly, I prefer not to think about unrepentant sin since I am so perfect in all that I do. I am never made a mistake, never lied. I've got the Holy Ghost, so grace will abound in my life forever, regardless of what I do. Is that true? Will grace abound on whatever you do? Of course not. Then God would be out of balance. You ever driven a car that wheels were out of balance? Every day. You know, that's the reason. You ever stop and think about that? That's the reason when you focus on one aspect of God and don't focus on the other aspect, it's like going down the road and a car with the wheels out of balance. I used to have, you know, in the work for the state, we had those old trucks. We never balanced the wheels for them. You go down, and they get to shaking so bad that your teeth would rattle. Some of you have a teeth-rattling experience with God because you fail to see both sides of God. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that you have so many troubles? Because you don't see both sides of God. Sometimes we get involved in, in situations where God is trying to pass judgment, rather a judgment which includes what, what Bobby read earlier, uh, chastisement. I'm not talking about throwing someone into hell. I'm talking about chastisement in this world today to keep somebody from going to hell. And we interfere in that situation. And we pull them out. Yes, we should help people, but there are enough times where we need to understand what's going on in someone's life and we need enough discerning. To understand that God is trying to to perfect this person, to build some character in this person so that they can make it to heaven. 
And we interfere in that situation, and that prevents that person from really relying on God. They don't see what God's trying to do in their life. Now, I I know that that's, that's really getting out there, but what I'm telling you is really the truth. God was merciful in sparing Noah and his family. But he would not tolerate unrepentant sin indefinitely, and he will not do that. Uh, In in Genesis 6 and 3, it says, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man. In the New International Version, it says it this way, My spirit will not contend with man forever. He won't contend with man forever. In other words, contending, he fights. When you contend, you battle. You ever you get in battle with God, and I, it's the reason I made the statement that I did earlier. When God is trying to bring someone to right relationship with Him, there comes a time that you have to learn to grow. And the only way that you can grow is to let God work you over on the potter's wheel again and again and again. We get to one area in our life with God. We cannot see any further than one aspect and God, we, we pray the prayer, and you hear someone preach, and you, you, get all, you have a watch night service, and you, want, you desire God to do something great in your life, and the first thing that happens to you, and Rob made the statement a while ago that it seems like my wife and I are going, but yeah, we are. But I understand a lot of what's happening as well. I don't enjoy it, but I am tired of not being lined up the way that I need to be lined up with God. So I'm going to have to, I'm going to, have to tolerate what I have to have tolerate or endure what I have to endure. He that endureth to the end, the same shall be saved. There has to be endurance when it comes to God bringing you in the proper relationship. We do not see God the right way. We see God through a, a, a monocular, one, one thing. We don't see both. We don't use both eyes to understand God. We don't understand the balance. When you see the, both sides of God, two eyes open, then it comes into perspective and it blends together. And you understand what God's trying to do. I'm not saying that I do it very well. None of us do. But are we going to just fold our hands, sit back, and get bullish about it? Well, either quit asking God to get you where you need to be, quit doing it, or then, then do it and just expect God to bring you into that right relationship in whatever way God wants to. Because that's how God operates. We have to see both sides of God. Am I living on this uh, sloppy, agape railway that everything is sweet and nice and perfect and, and you really, you know, you, you, you've, got this, you've got these uh, flowers in your eyes all the time. All you can see. And that's not the way because God sees that by seeing it this way, you're not really understanding Him. You're not doing what you need to do. You're not living the way you need to live. Everything is not a Hershey bar all the time. Now, that's the only way I can understand because I love Hershey bars. God made her. You know, I used to like Clark bars, but now it's Hershey bars. You know, I, I, you graduate. The big Hershey bars. You ever seen those ones at Cracker Barrel? That, 50 bucks for one of those. And I, I've, I've stood before them and lusted and coveted. Saying, I wonder how long one of those would last me. Two days. And then I'd be on a chocolate overload. You know, I'd be down in Monroe Hospital and you'd be pumping my stomach. <laughs> you know, but you do. You, you graduate. You, I, and you know, I say that to say this. I see God in the terms of, and I, maybe this is bad, but you see that big Hershey bar. I know God has got a lot for me. But, you know, so far all I've been doing is eating the little ones here. 
But there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a chance. You know, it costs you something to get that much of God. At the understanding of God and why God judges you and why God puts you through what He does. You know, since God is omnipresent, nothing escapes His notice. Now, in Psalm, I know I don't have this, Elder, but could you throw up Psalm 139, 7 through 12 for me? Psalm 139, 7 through 12. He constantly, He constantly sees everything mankind is doing, whether it be righteous or wicked, according to Proverbs 15 and 3. And moreover, He examines human hearts carefully, relentlessly, watches those who please Him and seeks to manifest His power to assist them. In Psalm 11 through 4, 2 Chronicles 16 and 9. Further, He allows no sin to evade his notice for even every idle word will be brought into judgment every I, and you know the word idle word just means useless word senseless word and look at psalm 139 7 whether shall i go from my spirit whether shall i free, flee from my presence if i send into heaven thou art there if i make my bed in hell behold thou art there if i take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea even there thy hand shall lead me and thy right hand shall hold me i love that you know, that's one part of the Psalms that you need to memorize. God will always be with you and always take you where you need to be. If you trust God in the way that this Psalm is saying it, then you're going to believe and understand that whatever you have to endure, God has His hands on you. When's the last time you just trusted Him? When's the last time you just believed that God would truly provide your needs according to His riches and glory? I'm going through a hard time right now. Maybe there's a judgment that I'm going through or a chastisement, if you like the word a little better, that I'm enduring right now. But why am I enduring it? What is God trying to do in my life? Have I been a bad boy? Is He whipping me? If He is, so be it. If He's not, He's just trying to take you to a level of trust that you would never understand if you didn't go through what you're going through. Don't expect somebody to carry you through everything you're enduring. I know the Bible tells us to bear one another's burdens. And in the original language, that is simply showing you a picture of someone coming and being bent over with a load on their back. I've looked the word up. To bear one another's burdens. That when In the East, when they carried loads, I've seen it myself. I've seen it in, in, uh, in Bali. I watched it one time. This, this lady was all bent over. She, was all, she had this huge stack of palm fronds and so forth on her back. And all she could do was look down. That's all she could do. And she walked like this. That was what this was saying. That means for you to come underneath the load, bend over, and she shifts the load, or he shifts the load on your back, and you walk that way. But later on in Galatians, it says, then bear your own burdens. What's it saying? It's saying that for a while I'm going to help you, and I'm going to walk with the load. But then somewhere along the line, you've got to come back and take it back. Yeah. And we have too many people that want someone to carry them, and they never want to bear their own burdens. Now, you know, fortunately a man called Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And the Bible describes him as a just man and perfect in his generation. And Noah walked with God. And when God looked at Noah, he was pleased because of Noah's righteous living in the midst of the world sold out to doing evil. Noah stood out as a preacher of righteousness. And although Noah pleased God, the things that God saw happening in Noah's life did not please him. God's magnificent creation, which he endued with glory and splendor, had become corrupt and through the presence of sin. And after God had completed his creation, he noted it was very good in Genesis 1:31 but by Noah's day the extreme evil among his creation was disturbing. Not only had the practice of sin escalated to a frenzied pace, but sin constantly controlled mankind's thoughts. Doesn't that sound just like our day? It constantly controlled man's thoughts. 
That's all man could think about. In Genesis 6, 5, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The earth was filled with violence. And all God could see were people who had departed from his ways. And considering his holy character, God's reaction to the sin-infested world was predictable. He was deeply saddened at mankind's sinful condition. And according to the NIV, it says, and his heart was filled with pain. I, I never, I, NIV brought that out very well. Uh, when it said, I don't really necessarily use that Bible, but they got this, these translations, and they are good in some, some areas. But you never really think of God's heart being pained. You think, well, God knew this from the beginning. He knew that he would have to destroy the world with a flood. He, he knew that he was going to come in the flesh and save mankind through Jesus Christ. He knew that. But yet, knowing it, knowing it's going to happen and watching it happen, still fills your heart with pain. Knowing that that, that can happen. I, you know, there's been, there's been things that I've seen in the church, and you knew God would let you know ahead of time it's going to happen. And it prepared me, but that did not help when it happened. You know, when you're, you're, and many of you have endured this, you know that you've had a loved one that's going to die, and you try to prepare yourself, but when they die, it still hurts. And can you imagine how God felt in that situation? Yes, he knew all that. He knew what he was going to do, but he keeps that, there's that, that part of God, I feel like, just like a part of us, that keeps thinking they can change, they can do better. But man just has his corruptness about him that he wants to go the easy way, even though sin isn't easy. The wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life. The wages of sin, regardless whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, was the same. And it was death. You know, God gives us good things. He gives us gifts. And if we don't use those gifts in the right way, don't you think it hurts the very heart of God? He even wished that he had never made mankind. What had begun as a creation of beauty had now turned into a terrible monster. And after seeing the dreadful condition of the earth, God declared his intention to execute judgment. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping things and the fowls of the air. For it repenteth me that I have made, made them. God revealed to Noah his specific plan to carry out his judgment. He would do, a, uh, he would do it through a miraculous, a miraculous catastrophe of epidemic proportions, a flood that would wipe out the entire population of the earth except Noah and his immediate family. And to prepare for this event, God instructed Noah to build an ark. And we know the story, if you've been around the church any length of time, in which his family and those who would join him would be spared. So God, God told him to build an ark to such proportions that everybody in the world could get on the boat. And eight people wound up getting on the boat. God always makes preparation for everybody. Can't you see why it hurts the heart of God to have to do some of the things that he does? Because he always makes preparation for everybody. What Jesus Christ has given us from the cross and the resurrection is good for every person on the face of the earth. From every generation, every person, every person, but yet only a few is going to go. Now I know we can argue that point. Some preachers think that they've got 15 in their church and that's the only ones that are going to go to heaven. If a billion people, and I've said this before, on this earth would go to heaven, that still would be few considering human population. And we're far, far from a billion people. That means we've got to work harder than we've ever worked before. 
Somehow, I, I don't know, you maybe don't feel the way that I do, but somehow just knowing that this hurts the heart of God hurts me. It makes me want to do more than I have. I want to live for God. I don't want to just sit back there and just, uh, you know, <laughs> I just about said something I probably shouldn't have. But just, 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 just suck away from every good thing God gives me without giving anything myself. You know, you've seen, I, I, you know, the, the flood, the impact of modern floods. Floods are, uh, you know, it's phenomenal. 2004, you know, the flood kind of went through the earth through a tsunami that spread, uh, no, actually not the earth, but spread rapidly across the Indian Ocean. Or the flood that struck the United States in the Gulf Coast of 2005 uh, as a result of Katrina. Now, these floods cause enormous destruction and loss of life. Nothing can compare to the scale, though, of the flood that occurred in Noah's generation when 15 cubits of water was above the tallest mountain. A cubit is said to be from a, and there's a lot of variation, but from the elbow to the tip of the fingers is cubit. Now, 15 of them from the tallest mountain. Uh, I heard, I heard. Merrill Cornwell, one time, he was talking about the flood. And he got into it. He really was getting into the flood. And he said, and God sent the flood, and he said it covered the whole earth. And he said, everybody was floundering. Everybody was grabbing at the side of the ark. And he said, no one. And it kept slipping off, and they would go under. And finally, one guy was left, and he was on the top of a mountain. And he said the floods came up above him, and he had his head above the water, and God took his thumb and pushed him under. No, you know, <laughs> you know. So, so I, I, I don't know if God took His thumb and pushed the last man under, but the thing remains that God was going to destroy everyone that was not on the ark. Everyone was to be destroyed. So we can't imagine, even can't imagine, with what we have seen, how horrible, horrible, or horrific, if you want to use the term, it would be uh, of, the, of, the, of that kind of magnitude. But there was also a promise with the flood. And not only did God spare Noah and his family, but he, he made he made divine promise to them after the flood had subsided, Noah's family had left the ark. Noah built an altar and made a burnt offering, and the smell of that burnt offering went up as a sweet savor in the nostrils of God. And God remembered him, and he declared that he would no more curse the ground and smite every creature in the same manner as the flood or cause the four seasons to cease. He made a covenant with Noah, his offspring, and all living creatures signified by a rainbow that never again would be, he would never again use a flood to destroy the world. He signified that by the rainbow. And every time you see the rainbow, that was a covenant that God made, a token of the covenant that God made with mankind that he wouldn't do it again. Now, while this pledge brought comfort and reassurance to Noah and his family, God did not promise that he would never again bring judgment upon mankind. He didn't say he would never judge mankind. He said he would never bring a flood again on the earth. The next time that God does it, it will be through fire. And that's what we have yet to see. It's still coming. The entire earth will not be covered with a flood, but it will be purged with an inferno. And the thing is that we must prepare to escape what God's getting ready to do. Bobby Smith was over here yesterday, and we were just talking about uh, the coming of the Lord. And, you know, he brought up the Mayan calendar business in, two, I think it's 2012, that the Mayan calendar ends. And, uh, you know, I just thought significantly whether this has anything to do with anything, I don't know. But the fact remains, again, the end of that generation from 1948 is 2018. So somewhere within this next 10-year period, we are going to see the 
coming of the Lord. Now, I don't care whether you agree with me or not. I believe that with all of my heart. And I'm not putting a date. I'm saying within the next 10-year period, we're going to see the coming of the Lord. I believe that with all my heart. I believe that because we're seeing that too many things come to an end. Too many fulfillments prophetic. And I've seen too many people begin to slip away from truth. Too many churches throwing away things that they used to hold dear. That is all part of the end time. And we cannot and will not, regardless of what it cost us, we cannot give up the truth of God's Word. We cannot throw away holiness. We need to bind it on front of our faces. Like, as a, you hear me? We need to bind it. Just like the belief in one God for the Israelites, we need to bind front and frontlets on our eyes holiness, standards, believing God, giving up the world, separation, women being women, men being men. We've seen the confusion of that and what it's caused. And the next one we see is the Tower of Babel. Second major judgment that appears in the book of Genesis occurred at the Tower of Babel. Now, this miraculous judgment was not as destructive as the flood, but it nevertheless entailed divine intervention against a unified attempt to defy God's command. God effectively thwarted humanity's plan to rebel against Him by confusing and multiplying their languages, ending their attempt at a building project destined to make us a name. Now, this is good because they wanted to make a name for themselves and that spirit is still prevalent today. God had created the earth as a place where people were to enjoy living. When, and when God originally made humans to populate the earth, he commanded them. He said, I want you to be fruitful and multiply. But you see, this had to be the same thing again after the flood. The sons of Noah, to be fruitful and multiply. They had to do the same thing. And they did. And they did it very well for a while. And, you know, as a means, there was something added to it. And as a means to curb the violence that had happened pre-flood. He said, now, he said, when somebody kills someone, he is going to forfeit his life. Punishment for taking someone's life was instituted. And this was to curb the violence that was in the earth prior to the flood. So he added this as an injunction. Now, initially, again, Noah's sons obeyed well God's command to be fruitful and multiply. The 10th chapter of Genesis, 10th chapter of Genesis uh, presents the genealogy of Noah's sons and the nations that resulted. However, humanity soon concocted a plan to circumvent. And just for the sake of it, I'm just going to say this because I no matter how many times I have taught this, this same, I'm starting to say something I shouldn't have said. There's no question that it's silly. Okay, started to say silly question. I, I'm a bad person. You want to hit me on the hand there? Okay. Noah's sons married their sisters. Okay. It was a different world. There was no disease. Everything was still clean. And later it was changed, and that was made incest. Okay. It's possible in a perfect world for that to happen. So don't ask that question anymore. I don't even think that question. I heard you thinking it out there. You thought it, didn't you? You already knew the answer. You're a genius. I forgot. Bob knew the answer. He's back there looking at me. Maybe he didn't agree with it. Maybe he thought there was another group. Oh, well, better move on. Okay. 
Humanity soon concocted a plan to circumvent God's decree, and they journeyed together to a plain in the territory of Shinar where they proposed the construction of a city featuring a colossal tower, probably a temple tower of ziggurat, you know, whose who top may reach into the heaven. Now, their agenda was arrogant, self-centered, and humanistic, and they clearly intended to defy God's intention. He told them they weren't going to destroy the world with a flood anymore, but they were going to be sure that they had a way around in case God changed his mind. And you realize that any time you think that God is going to change his mind just for you, that you put yourself in the same category of the dwellers at the Tower of Babel. Because God made a token, he gave a token, and he made a covenant with Noah that he would never again destroy the world with a flood. And they did not accept that. Just as a, as a case in point, how is it that we can believe something so totally, fully, biblically correct, and all of a sudden it be changed? When the Bible is already settled in heaven, and it's not being rewritten, it's already settled. How can we take something away from that? How can we all of a sudden believe that it's no longer necessary uh, you know, for women to wear their hair long and uncut? How, how is it no longer necessary for, for men to look like men? You know, how is it, when do you stop, when do you stop, you know, when do you start, stop putting the lines? You know, you, you start, it's okay to do this, it's okay to do that. And we do it for the sake of revival. And, you know, we'll just take it right. All of a sudden, it's no longer necessary to worship. When you used to worship for 20 years, and all of a sudden, worship turns people away. I don't care. People, do, they do not come to a Pentecostal church expecting a Baptist service. They do not. We are apostolic Pentecostals. We worship, we love God, and we do not change that. We do not change that. If I change that, then I, must, I might as well quit being what I am. I, I, you know, I know some of you think I'm a fanatic, and that's exactly what I am. Because a fanatic means unchangeable, and I've not been changeable. I'm not very changeable. Now, I like a little change occasionally, as long as it's change that I've implemented. <laughs> oh, my wife says I get worse as I get older. That's a scary thought. You know? you, yeah, yeah, it's a scary thought. <laughs> Very scary. God had created the earth as a place, again, where people should enjoy living. Now, while this building project was in progress God came down and that's a Hebrew word yarad for an inspection so God came down to inspect isn't that inter interesting God made an inspection tour I wonder how many times he still does that you know he walks around inspects you see what you're doing you're sitting in the church on Sunday morning asleep God comes by for an inspection tour you ever felt that when you were sleeping on Sunday morning and all of a sudden you felt this pinch and you thought somebody next to you did it? Well, it's God's inspection tour. <laughs> you know, so, so, you know, he comes down and he inspects, you know, to, to see what was happening. Genesis 11.5 tells us, While divine encounters with, with the Almighty can be both thrilling and awe-inspiring, they also can be terrifying. Now, the Hebrew word to visit I'm not even going to try to say it, which often refers to a divine appearances can, appearances can convey the connotation of a, or to visit upon, to punish. So when God visits, sometimes it's not just to inspect, but to punish. 
So the same word here is used, and that comes from the Brown, Driver, and Briggs Hebrew lexicon. As in the days of Noah, when God saw sin virtually everywhere, he was not pleased. And this time, with what he discovered, when he came down, certainly this would not turn out to be a friendly visit. So he didn't like what he inspected, so he came down to punish as a result of his inspection. So God responded to the situation by turning the organized building endeavor into a total disarray. It was totally chaotic. The people had to abandon the project because of the chaos. Well, one day they can understand each other. The next day they can't understand at all. And if you've ever been in a building project, it's hard enough without not being able to understand the person next to you. You know, in building terms, you talk to the right people. They, you know, they talk to me and tell me what you need to do to build a church or to build a building. And it's like a different language to me. It's like Christianese. You've heard me talk about that. You talk Christianese to someone who doesn't have a clue, and they don't know what you're saying. It's like a different language. So you have to be careful how you do things. So it's difficult. Now, the, the name of the unfinished city became known as the Hebrew language as Babel. Now, because of, of wordplay with the Hebrew verb uh, for confound or confuse, and that means balal. That's where that came from. It's a Hebrew word for confound or confuse, B-A-L-A-L. Uh, Genesis 11 verse 9. Now in their unified state, the builders of the city and the tower could have accomplished whatever they desired, but God thwarted their plans. They had united together and resolved to subvert God's will for people to spread out across the earth. God told them to do this, and they didn't. The city of Babylon, uh, the Akkadian name for Babel, so that's where that came from, according to, according to Harper's Bible Dictionary, was the leading city of the region, which later led to the tribe of Judah's captive. Babylon possibly was was a code word for Rome. Babylon, you know, was, was, it could have been just a part of Rome at that time. And it, it's a place where, which the apostle Peter wrote his first epistle. The word itself involves a, rep, a represented, organized rebellion. Now, this is interesting because you see this used even in the book of Revelations. Uh, Babel, Mystery Babel, or Babylon, Mystery Babylon. And, and that became a code word similar to Similar to, now this is just my own revelation on this, similar to Jezebel. You see, the, you've suffered that woman Jezebel to live in the book of Revelation. And I believe Babylon is a spirit. It's a spirit of unified, organized rebellion. I think that's the thing that we, that's another one that we miss sometimes. We're quick to understand the manipulation and seduction and intimidation of Jezebel's spirit, but the Babylon spirit is organized rebellion. And there's a lot of that going on right now. Organized rebellion. So we see a spirit that can be named. And maybe when we have our prayer meetings, when you pray, you need to mention that particular spirit in prayer. That spirit needs to be bound as well. Not everything that is unified. You've got to be careful with, uh, you know, we love the term unity, but what are we unifying for? I, I don't like to bring and, and throw, throw a piece of metal into your gears here, but ever so often that's exactly, we, we, we get so much on one area, we forget what we're doing, why we do it. It's, it's easy to say, I'm, I'm, I'm coming around patting old Rob on the back, he's my buddy, we're going to unify, we're going to do this. But why are we unifying? What's our purpose? Unity can do a lot, obviously, because God came down at a unified group at Babel. And he changed it because obviously the imaginations that they had, they were going to do something. Of course, we know that, that the tower was set up for the study of the stars in astrology, not astronomy, but astrology, the effect of the stars on men's lives. So it was set up that way as well. 
We also know Tower of Babel was where we got the first trinity. We understand all this. All comes from, from this. Every religion began right here. But let's see, this is the power of unity and a group of people unifying to rebel. So we've got to be cautious in how we do this. Unity at any cost is not right. There has to be a reason and a purpose and the right motive for unity because it's a powerful, powerful weapon. Okay. I hope I really threw you off on that one. The next one is the destruction of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah on the plain. And uh, again, this included the principal cities of the region, Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, and this constituted the third major judgment of the book of Genesis. Uh, these cities were located near the Dead Sea and what was then the land of Canaan. Lot, Abraham's nephew, had chosen to relocate in this, this beautiful and well-watered area and settle there, pitching his tent towards Sodom. Now, he didn't realize... He didn't realize what he was getting into. Again, there was a man who all he could do was see with what the eyes could see. Whatever looked good to the natural eye, this is what Lot wanted, and it cost him dearly. Uh, and it may have seemed like a great setting, but it wasn't a great setting. Lot was soon to discover that they were not, these were not average sinners. These were not average sinners. Men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly, according to Genesis 13 and 13. Now, you keep that in mind. That's exactly how it says it. They were exceedingly sinners. I, I, I used to, you know, ever so often you'd have things spring out of you. We talk about sin being sin. But in God's economy, these were exceeding sinners. So there must be more than just sin. Something exceeds. And we know the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. Homosexuality. These were the immoral practices. People of Sodom would prove less than hospitable to Lot, uh, as well as the men of the city attempted to rape or sodomize. And the term derives from the immoral sexual practices of the sodomites, the male visitors who were staying at Lot's house in Genesis 19. Lot would find himself daily vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. Second Peter 2.7 Lot was trying to live a godly life in the midst of extreme wickedness and perversion. For that righteous man dwelleth among them, and, and seeing and hearing, and vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds, according to Second Peter 2.8. Moving to Sodom was probably not the wisest choice that Lot ever made. And what was even worse is that Lot didn't want to leave it. He was vexed by it, but he didn't leave it. He was sitting at the gate. When the men came in, the angels of the Lord. Of course, we, we know the story when, uh, when Abraham, there was three men that came to visit him at Mamre. And when they came in, one of them being the Lord in angelic form or theophany. And they gave him the uh, proclamation that Sarah was to uh, have a child. And then they went on to say that they were going down to visit uh, Sodom and see about the sin that was there. And this is where Abraham, knowing that Lot was there, began to deal with the theophany, God in angelic form, saying, if you can find 50 righteous souls, will you spare the city? And he went on dealing until he got down that God would spare it for 10 righteous souls. What do we see here? You know, you have people, and I've read, read letters, many of you have been around church, any length of time you've had people say well you know just why did god destroy that city what a terrible thing to do but god gave them ample opportunity to find 10 people that were righteous 10 people and so when they went down there and he went down they couldn't find that the two angels that were with the lord in angelic form 
They went down, and, and their lot was sitting at the gate, so obviously he was a man of means. He was somebody who was in power at Sodom, and that's probably why he wouldn't leave. So he greeted them at the gate. The Bible says he was sitting there. He greeted them at the gate, invited them, invited them into his house. He would take care of them. That evening, the men of Sodom began to surround his house and to say, to send out the men that had come so that they could know them or have sexual relations with them. Lot, Lot offered his daughters and they didn't, weren't even interested in the women. They wanted the men. This is how bad and how exceedingly bad this really was. And what's interesting here, Genesis 19 and 9. Throw that up there if you would. I, this just came, I guess I'd never seen this before. And they said, stand back. And they said again, this one fellow came into sojourn and he will need to be a judge. Look at that term judge. What does that sound like to you? Anybody want to see what, the, did you see this or am I just crazy? Anybody understand what I'm seeing right up here? Have you ever heard that term before? What right do you have to judge me on my lifestyle? That's exactly what that's saying. Obviously, God had a right to judge him on the lifestyle. I mean, you realize how exceedingly wicked these men were when God struck them with blindness and that the Bible says that they still look for the door. Even though they were struck with blindness... They were still looking for the door. They were trying to get in. Now you, you can imagine. Uh, folks, let me, let me give you a little something on perversion here. The spirit of perversion in, is a spirit of perversion, whether it's homosexual or someone who claims to be a sex addict. Someone who, a man who chases women or a woman who chases men or women who chase women or men who chases men. It's still the same spirit. It's perversion. And a lot of times you see one who, who claims to be a sex addict or whatever it may be, that they'll go either way because the spirit is it's just a spirit of perversion. It doesn't matter. And so that's why a lot of times you see women who have a, uh, and, and it can go the other way, but I'm, I, I know of situations where women have had a bad marriage who will turn to other women, become lesbians. And because, you know, they claim, but it, it's a still a spirit of perversion. A lot of times there was perversion that was uh, enacted on them, so they turned that way. Same way with a child. You're not born a homosexual. You're not born a homosexual. And I know there's situations, that, well, we even get in there because that will take up the rest of the time, where, where people begin to question why things happen the way they do. I don't have all the answers, but I know God does, and I know that we can make decisions to help people, and people can come out of it. It's not something that you're stuck in. All right. The Nelson Study Bible says this. The men of Sodom were aggressive homosexuals, bent on raping innocent travelers. And under the circumstances, Lot showed great courage by inviting his guests to stay in his house under his protection. He did, but he was also stupid as far as I'm concerned. That's just Robertson theology. If you know that kind of stuff's going on, I think I'd have went outside the city and set up a tent somewhere. You know, why do that? Now... Abraham had hoped that ten righteous people could be found in Sodom. But Lot could not even convince his son-in-laws who thought he was joking, according to Genesis 19 and 14, that Sodom was about to be destroyed. Lot, his wife, and his two unmarried daughters fled from the city behind the leadership of the angels who had instructed them to run for their lives and not look back. 
The judgment was swift, it was miraculous, and it was alarming. Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heavens, and he overthrew those cities and all the plains and all the inhabitants of the cities and that which grew upon the ground. Lot's wife, disobeying the angel's command, turned to look upon the, the horrible spectacle, and she became a pillar of salt. Now this large urban center, only three people ultimately survived. Now, that takes us to the next section of this. Perversion is perversion. If you live around a perverted lifestyle all the time and you don't try to make changes, that perversion can rub off on you regardless of who you are. If a man touches an unclean thing, does he become unclean? Does anybody want to answer that? He does, doesn't he? He becomes unclean if he touches an unclean thing. Come out from among them, be ye separate. Touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. Right? When he took his daughters and left, the daughters said that they come in to lie, they, they lied or laid, if you would, with their father, become pregnant by their father. Now, regardless of whether he was drunk or not in this situation, the daughters were still around perversion, and it made them be that way. By this time, they didn't have to uh, have relationship with your family members in order to keep be fruitful and multiply. They thought they were the only people left on the face of the earth. That's the way the Bible says it. But I still feel like that that spirit of perversion is what prompted them. When you get around this, it's hard to break it. Are you, are you hearing and understanding what I'm trying to say here this morning? If you live in a situation where you're around this, you've got people in your life or friends in your life that have got this kind of perversion, you need to make new friends. If you can't change them, God help, don't you, know, don't, don't you allow that to happen to you. Case in point, I was, making, I was making this, you know, only I can do this in this kind of theology and have you understand that. I went to, and been, forgive me for those of you who get a little bit unhappy about hunting, but I went rabbit hunting with Jason's brother. Now, I only go to observe, of course, never to do anything. And uh, he had... A very good rabbit dog. Very good one. I hunted with it last year, observing, of course, but I hunted with it last year. And uh, he turned this out, and he had his cousin's dog with him. His cousin's dog was a young dog, and immediately when he turned him out, I noticed the cousin's dog wouldn't listen to anything he said, and his dog, who always listened, didn't listen. Are you getting me? You understand that? And I told him, I said, you, that's a, that dog is a bad influence on your good dog. Back when my younger days, before God delivered me from killing and all that kind of stuff, I used to have rabbit dogs. I just said killing people. I didn't say anything about killing rabbits. <laughs> and, so, and so, you know, I, I, so, so I seen this, and sure enough, we went out there. Dog would not listen to him. The bad dog took off on a deer trail, and the good dog followed. And the dogs were gone, and are still gone. That's been two days ago. Because the influence of something bad on something good. I made a statement. I, I, I used that because it, I said it's the same way with kids. You put a good kid with a bad kid. Now, I know there's exceptions. But unless you are constantly reinforcing or reassuring and helping, you know, two can put 10,000 to flight, but you put one-on-one -on, -one on a child, they're going to normally follow after the bad one because, you know, they just enjoy doing bad things. 
Now, am I correct or not? If anybody want to say that you've seen that very same thing. That doesn't mean that we don't try to influence, we don't try to save people, we try to help them. But we have to be cautious in how we do this. Because if we touch an unclean thing, we become unclean. And it's the same way dogs, children, wives, husbands. Any of you wives out there ever seen your husband get around the bad guys and become bad? You know, they never drink smoke, cuss, or any of this stuff until they get around the other guys. Huh? Isn't that right? Because they're weak-willed. That makes me, always made me so mad. I, I, this, is, this is my weakness in the flesh. When I, when I came to God, I made up my mind to serve God until I died. And, and you know, God got around, been around people and when you worked, when I was working outside. And you see him get around. You know, I had people that I actually hired from the church and, and worked. And you see him start acting like these people. And, you know, I, I never allowed that. I always made a point to influence them. I don't care how hard that you tried, how hard it was, you pushed yourself to influence. You're not going to be influenced by them. And do you realize how much power there is in that? Because they know that what you have is real. They understand that. I, I, we have got to be saved from judgment. We have, got, we have got judgment is upon us as far as the Lord coming back for His church. We have got to be ready for His soon coming, and we cannot vacillate now. We still maintain our separation. We still influence people. We don't let them influence us. And we don't put ourselves in position. You know when you're weak. You know when you shouldn't be around it. Stay away from it. I don't care what somebody says. Stay away from it. If your brother influences you in the wrong way, stay away from your brother. <laughs> Good preaching. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Now, I, it's interesting. I, uh, there was many cities. I, I never really had seen this before, but many cities and nations that were in rebellion against God, were compared to Sodom, and forewarned they were in danger of the same and worse judgment. Now, just keep this in mind. Israel in Amos 4.11, Judah in Isaiah 1, 9 and 10, Jerusalem in Lamentations 4 and 6, and Ezekiel 16.46, and Revelations 11 and 8, Babylon in Isaiah 13.19, Moab, Zephaniah 2.9, Edom, Jeremiah 49.17, and Capernaum, Matthew 11:23. Jesus foretold that the time of his return would be like the days of Lot. Luke 17:28 through 30 should be coming up. Luke 17. Likewise also as it was in the days of Lot. They did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So Jesus is telling us as it was in the days of Lot, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. When the Lord returns, we're going to see and look at it. Look at it. And it's not just here. It's not just in this area. We don't see, we don't see just perversion in Bloomington. Perversion is everywhere. You know, that I, when I was in, <laughs> I, I was in Manila one time, and we was at a, a fairly nice hotel that was cheap. And, uh, you know, we're out there getting in the car, we're going to one of the churches, and I see this beautiful woman come running out, oh, and it was a man-woman. <laughs> 
I rolled up the windows and locked the doors. I mean, Philippines are full, full. So you know I'm saying, you know, it's not just, you know, good old liberal USA. It's everywhere. That's the spirit, folks. It's the spirit of the last days. You know, we can get mad, we can gnash our teeth, and we can carry on all we want to, but it is the spirit of the last days. We're not going to change it. We just hope and pray that we can get a hold of as many people as we can to pull them out of it. That's the key. That's the key. The day of the Lord, the Bible says, or I say, and the Bible says, is at hand. In Isaiah 13 and 6, Zephaniah 1, 7, Joel 1, 15, Romans 13 and 12, 2 Thessalonians 2, 2. And God's final day of judgment foreshadowed by the judgments of the flood, the Tower of Babel, and the destruction of Sodom. And it's getting near every day. It will be a day like no other day of darkness, of gloominess, a day of clouds. Now, when it speaks of this way, 2 Peter 3, 10 speaks of it in various scriptures, a day of gloominess. What do you think it's saying? Is it talking about... The natural order, is the sky is going to be gloomy or they're going to be overcast? Or do you think it's the spirit that we feel? Ah, very good. How many people have to fight with depression? I have to fight with it. That's just, don't you think that's what that's saying? That's a darkness, a cloud. That, we're, that we all feel. It's not just one of... And, and folks, I don't, I don't agree with it. We shouldn't be depressed. None of us should be depressed. I shouldn't be depressed. And God knows I've come long, long ways. I've learned how to pray through it. But the thing is, it is the spirit of the age. We all fight it together. And we need to encourage one another in this. There's a lot of people that's coming in out of the world that are wanting to get free of depression. And we have to fight it so we can give them the way out. I mean, what you, you look at it, you worry about health care don't we? We worry about health care. We worry about you know, making enough money to make ends meet. We worry about buying groceries and gas for the car next week. The water's frozen up. The drains are frozen up. My furnace is frozen up. And I'm frozen up. You know, all these are happening. It tends to make you depressed. But, you know, we got a God that will take us through this. Now, I want you to know, and I want you, oh, you all of us need to be encouraged in this. This coming Tuesday, we're having a prayer meeting. This is going to be a church-wide prayer meeting. I got church-wide prayer meeting. And we're going to start at 7 o'clock. We're going to pray. We're going to bind the spirit of depression. Right, this, is, this is what I felt in the Holy Ghost. We're going to bind it. Not only are we going to bind the spirit of depression, I would like for you to do this. I want you to keep this in mind. I'd like for you to write down. You don't have to put details, but something that you're dealing with, something you want God to work in the, in the situation, I'd like tonight after service for you to lay them out on this altar. Just, you can fold them up where everybody can see them. What way, and we used to do this some. We'd walk by and we would read something, and God would prompt us to pray for that particular need. You don't have to sign it. You don't have to do any of that. Just lay it down on the altar, what you want God to do. And we need to remember to announce this again tonight. Announce this tonight because I believe that God is going to be moved by prayer. He always is moved by prayer. When we begin to bind together, this is the last days. I'm excited about what I see. But I'm also fearful in a sense to the fact that I see people who seem to be pulling away from God rather than pulling closer to God. And we need to pray that God opens our eyes to the time that we're living in. And this is, this is imperative right now that we know that Jesus is coming and that we prepare ourselves for His soon coming because this is not some fairy tale. This is not something that you've heard preached all your life. It's not going to happen. It is going to happen. As sure as I'm standing before you today, it is going to happen. 
And God's warning us. God is compassionate. He is long-suffering, not desiring that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He wants that. His very mission was to seek and to save that which was lost. He did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Because God loves us, he sends us out a clear alarm to all to get ready for his return. That's the reason I brought up that point of depression because of the gloominess it's going to be at the coming of the Lord. There are people that are depressed and there's depression that's hit people and they don't have a clue where it comes from. Everything can be going right in their lives. It is because it is the spirit of this age. But we got a God that can take us through it. Let's stand and let's begin to worship the God that can deliver each and every one of us right now together. Hallelujah Jesus. Hallelujah Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. We thank you. We praise you. We glorify you. Turn and shake somebody's hand and tell them that you've been set free from depression and you're going to receive it and accept it right now. In Jesus' name. Lord, bless you all.